I love my city and, and all the stories we're able to tell. But I also think that you don't get anywhere without coming from somewhere. We didn't arrive at the moment we're in today out of thin air. Past events built to the present moment. I am Patty Callahan, and welcome to the podcast, The Untold Story Behind Surviving Savannah, a novel about an 1838 steamship disaster that many refer to as the Titanic of the South. This podcast is an in-depth exploration into the true stories behind the novel. You'll hear interviews with some of the foremost experts on the myth and lore of the mystical city of Savannah, shipwreck treasure hunting, museum curation of maritime history, and the astounding real-life family that inspired this novel. I'm the author, Patty Callahan. Today, we're talking to Shannon Browning Mullis about the truth versus the mythology of the mystical city of Savannah. When I began my research for Surviving Savannah, one of the first things I did was approach the museums. This is where the history is told in artifacts and displays, a visual storytelling. It is there that I discovered that telling the untold story is more important to me than retelling the known stories. A map of Savannah's history can be traveled through its museums. Shannon Browning Mullis works to bring the history of oppressed people to the public through architecture, artifacts, and personal stories in an effort to move toward justice today. As curator of history and decorative arts for Telfair Museums, she led the major reinterpretation of the Owens Thomas House and slave quarters, which resulted in the full inclusion of the enslaved men, women, and children into the site's narrative. She's currently the executive director at the Juliet Gordon Lowe Birthplace, where she seeks to use history to empower women and girls. Okay, Shannon, let's dive right in. I once heard you give a talk called Emancipating the Past. It's such a provocative title. As a historical fiction writer, maybe that's what we're often trying to do, emancipate the past, let it kind of loose from the mythology of the time and and the stories that we hear. So I want you to talk to us a little bit about why that's so important. All right. Well, first I have to say, thanks for talking with me today, Patty. It was so fun uh, to talk to you when you visited the museum, and I've been excited to see the book when it comes out. So I'm glad we're together today. Me too. In fact, you know, to give it some context, when when I was walking out, it, we just stopped for a second and talked about this fuller story. And it really prodded me to look further. It was one single comment you made. And, and I dove a lot deeper because of what you said. So yes, I'm thrilled to have you here today. So yeah, that's let's so talk exciting. about why that's so important. Yeah, you know, I think it's so interesting when we we think about history, often, you know, especially as children in school, we think we're being taught something concrete and completely known and definite. And of course, historians know that's not true. Uh, They know that all history is recorded from a particular perspective. 
and they know that they only get part of the story every time. And so, you know, with the learning more and the discovering more resources, the story fleshes out and, and we start to understand different things in different ways. But one thing that I think is critical is that for a very long time, what was considered history was the story of war, the story of government, um, you know, the story of the usually white men, usually white Christian men mm -hmm. who were at the top of the government and the wars. Um, and so you miss a huge part of the population that were actually making things possible, that were baking the bread and working the fields and having the children. Um, so when I think about emancipating the past, I think both about examining what really happened and I think about examining who the players were. Mm -hmm. uh, made it all possible. The cast is bigger than we think. Not only is it bigger than we think, it's way more diverse than we think. Absolutely. So when, when you were working at the Owens Thomas House in Slave Quarters, I came to talk to you because I had brought pictures that had been found at the bottom of the ocean on the steamship Pulaski wreck, and I really wanted to identify it. I felt like it would be interesting to figure out who had lost this silver. There were monograms on the silver that I wanted to identify. And I really thought that that was the only reason I was visiting the museum until I started talking to you. And I came to a much greater understanding about not only telling the untold stories, but not retelling the known stories. The Owens Thomas House and slave quarters were important to me because it reinforced an understanding that there's a difference between telling a story and telling a further story. So tell me about the difference to you and why y'all completely revamped that part of the Owen Thomas house and why does it even matter? Yeah, thank you for asking that because I think this is so important. Uh, I, I think we often talk about telling different stories. And, you know, we've told this story before, so now we're going to tell this story. But I want to offer, you know, an alternative way to look at that and say that we're only telling one story, but we have to tell the whole thing. The story of wealthy slaveholders does not exist without the people they enslaved. And the story of the wealthy men in government doesn't exist without their mothers and their wives and their children and the people they were governing. So I think one thing that we've done in the past is say, hey, we've, we've told this story. Now we're going to tell this one. And instead, I want to say we've told part of the story. Sometimes, sometimes we've told a mythology to ourselves. Now, instead, let's tell a whole inclusive story that really talks about where we came from. So the bottom of the Owens Thomas house was actually something else until you redid it to show it as slave quarters, right? What did y'all do to bring it back to life to tell this fuller story? Yeah, the Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters uh, is such an interesting site because it's an original trust lot complex. Hmm. Means, uh, and, and I think maybe we should talk a little bit about how Savannah is structured because it's a unique city. Uh, Savannah is founded on a city plan. So it originally uh, is intended to have squares, which are these central green spaces. Uh, there are two trust lots on the east and west sides and 10 tithing lots on the north and south side of those green spaces. And the tithing lots are intended for personal homes. They're smaller. 
uh, but the trust lots were intended for public buildings. So your churches and courthouses and town halls. Um, it's a really neat plan. It works incredibly well considering 200 years later, we're still, we're still living here. But what happened was, you know, Savannah started with four squares and it grew and eventually there were more than four squares, but you only needed so many churches and courthouses and town halls. And so wealthy people started building mansions on these trust lots. And the original trust lot complex would be the large house on the front, the slave quarters and carriage house on the back with a walled uh, workyard in between. Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters is one of the only ones that still has all those pieces left. There's the main house, um, which is two stories over a raised basement, which is which is what you're talking about. Um, and then the original Slave Quarters and Carriage House in the back, which housed uh, between eight to 14 enslaved people, depending on what year it was, um, as well as horses and carriages. The working basement, which we reinterpreted, um, had the original kitchens, the scullery, uh, all of those places where the labor of making life possible was happening. You know, food was being cooked, laundry was being cleaned. Uh, I love it so much, not just because it tells this more diverse story, which is important, but also because when I go to historic sites and see the finished product, you know, when I see the formal dinner set or the beautiful uh, bed made or whatever it is, I think, how did they do that? You know, mm-hmm. they do that without the dishwasher and the microwave and all those things. So I love seeing service spaces that I think help us understand how life functioned in a particular period. And not only how it functioned, what was fascinating to me when I walked into that space, which I think everyone should do, is that parts of it were actually dangerous. The, the laundry room in particular was actually a dangerous place. And so if you only tour the house and it's an extraordinary house and they have some of the original silver and, and the China and you, you don't get a concept of what we were just talking about, which is the entire story, mm-hmm. which is this area underneath where things were happening and lives were being lived and unfolding in a, in a much more dangerous way. I love the history of Savannah. I'm enchanted by it. I'm fascinated by it. And when it was first founded, like you said, it was a planned city with these squares, but it was first founded by Oglethorpe, who came over from England, obviously. And I think it's so fascinating that he had four laws that he started with. No lawyers, no Catholics, no liquor, and no slaves. Savannah was founded on the principle of no slavery. And obviously that legacy changed and runs deep and wide, including the atrocities done by the character in my novel, Charles Lamar. So tell me a bit about why that legacy changed, why Savannah started that way and then then just took a veered left or right or whatever it might've been. You know, it's an interesting question. And I think, um, it's sometimes something that we overstate when we say Savannah was founded as a colony without enslaved people. Of course, they said slaves at the time. Um, but really what happened is that, you know, Oglethorpe and the trustees made the four laws that you just mentioned. They were absolutely in place because Georgia was, was it was an experiment, right? It was a laboratory to kind of test what was possible. But the reality is that uh, they were borrowing I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me. Um, enslaved people from Charleston from day one to. Uh, wow. I did not know that. Talk about build, mythology. 
Wow. Yep, to build the city um, and, and do the labor of making it livable for the colonists. Um, so the colonists didn't enslave people themselves. They didn't own enslaved people, uh, but there were enslaved people there doing that labor. And what happened was that, you know, the people who colonized Savannah looked around and, and they were struggling. You know, it was intended uh, that they were going to grow silk. That didn't really work out. No, not really. Not really at all. <laughs> not even a so, little bit. Yeah, just didn't happen. And so they're struggling. Many of them are dying. And they look over to Charleston where people are becoming very wealthy mm-hmm. on the labor of the people they enslaved. And they start to say, wait a minute, why should we work hard to barely survive when they're over there making a fortune? Um, It also happens that, you know, it's originally founded as a a trust colony governed by trustees, but Georgia gets turned over to the crown and becomes a crown colony. And so it's then governed by the rules of other crown colonies. So all that came together to get rid of the official rule that there couldn't be slaves in Savannah, even though slave labor had helped build the city before. See, that's what I'm talking about. That is horrifying and fascinating that we get told this myth about Savannah began without slaves and then it changed when the enslaved were there from the very beginning, helping to build this mystical and magical city. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Interesting. And, and, you know, I think it's a much deeper conversation movie, but uh, nobody wants to be complicit right? Um, In the suffering of other people. And when you hear something about your ancestors that you can be proud of, uh, you often latch onto it. And so when we hear somebody say Savannah was founded as a city without slavery, that sounds really beautiful and wonderful and hopeful uh, in a time that we know that most things were not just. And so we want to latch onto that idea and believe it about ourselves and our ancestors. So it's hard to then say, wah, wah, wah. (laughs) It's hard to say. And I mean, we, we all do it. We, we talk, I talk about my Irish ancestry. I have no idea what they were doing. I'm, you know, it sounds romantic, but that's the myth of, of it all. Right. Yeah. So, but there was a difference too. There was a difference between the city enslaved and the urban enslaved mm-hmm. uh, and the country house and the urban house. And some people, including me in the past had this mythological idea that it was in some ways better to be in the city house like like the enslaved I have in Surviving Savannah. Talk to me about that because I've heard you say that we, and I agree, that we really need to fight against the mythology of the good owner. So important. Uh, so one, one myth that I would dispel is the idea that the person enslaved on a rural agricultural holding and the person enslaved in an urban dwelling are necessarily different people. Mm. One thing we know is that, you know, I, tr- I try not to use the plant word plantation too much just because um, of the idea it automatically conjures for people, you know, which is romance and hoop skirts and Scarlett O'Hara. When- because that's what we see. And, and we they're still called plantations right now and they still exist. And so it, it feels very antebellum, that word Absolutely. rather than. Yeah. Um, and and. And it's, yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's being fed to us by a popular culture every day. Um, So the movies and the books and all those things, uh, you know, kind of hearken to that idea. But I think it's important for us to know that 
there were rural agricultural holdings that had large houses on them um, that wealthy people visited frequently, but they were the minority. There were many more huge rural agricultural holdings that were slave labor camps. There was no big house. Um, there was you know, a little house for the overseer. It was owned by a wealthy person who lived somewhere totally else. Um, so, so what we think of as plantations weren't all really the plantations in our mind. Um, but the other thing that's important is all of those, whether they were just slave labor camps or whether they also included a mansion, generally the family that owned them also owned a house in a city, at least one city, sometimes a Southern city and a Northern city. Um, and so they're moving between those places and they're often moving the people they enslaved between those places. So it may be that they take children who are too young to be terribly useful in a field, but are just fine for running errands in the house to the city. And when they get older and stronger, they send them back for field work um, or any combination of that. You know, there are people moving back and forth between those spaces. So that's one thing that's really important. Now, it's not true of everybody. You know, if there's an incredibly skilled um, cook, for example, they're probably not sending that, that person out to do field work. But still, um, the other thing is that you were just talking about is, you know, the conditions, how are they different in rural and urban areas? And I think the myth of uh, the benefits of, of being in the house are completely logical. When mm -hmm. you go through those mansions, they certainly seem like a preferable place to be. Um, and in some ways they were, you know, when you think about food, clothing and shelter, they were always going to be better in these urban mansions because there's more food there. Um, you know, they're getting table scraps and they're getting, uh, you know, leftover cuts of meat and that kind of thing. They're also going to have better clothes because they're serving at the fine dining table, you know, and, and people are seeing them and they're seen as a reflection of the person who enslaves them. And they're living in slave quarters or in the attic or basement of that house. So you can think of those material things as being better. But I would suggest a, a little bit more complication to it than that, because on these rural agricultural holdings, you might have a hundred enslaved people living together with one overseer. And those enslaved people could be your parents, your sisters, your brothers, your cousins, your uncles. Um, they could be people you've known your entire life. They aren't necessarily, because we certainly know people were sold and separated regularly, but they could be. And in those cases where there is that number of people, there are also religious customs and traditions and relationships and songs. And there are things that even in the midst of hardship, people carve out their own joy, right? Mm -hmm. And you do that with your community. And so there's that sense of community. In an urban area where you're in the home of the person who enslaves you and under their constant supervision, it's a different situation. You may have better food and clothing, but that person also um, is watching you constantly. They, if you are able to live with your children, they're watching you know, that relationship. They may punish your children for any number of things. And we also have to acknowledge the thing that makes everybody more uncomfortable than the rest of enslavement, uh, which is saying something, but women, well, women, men, and children, but predominantly women were at risk of sexual violence mm -hmm. at all times 
and the exposure and proximity of white men to those enslaved women increased the risk of sexual violence. And so when they were in those urban spaces, in those houses, that was a constant threat. When you say that, I can feel this like surge of, of, of radical injustice, this, this, this rage kind of as a woman mm-hmm. rise up that, that I can't, it's hard to explain all these years later how, how it was went on and, and justified. Um, yeah. And you know, that gets to, um, you were saying, um, the myth of the good slave owner, which we hear in museums all the time. And it's because, you know, people are going through this beautiful space. They want to identify with the people who were at these parties. And so they say, but were they good slave owners? Hmm. Of course, it can be very difficult not to roll your eyes um, at them. But what they, what they mean, I think, is did these people physically harm the people they enslaved? That's what I think they mean by that question. And I think one thing that we try to point out um, is that even if people weren't physically abused, they're in constant risk of being separated from their families at any moment. So for example, if you had what these people I'm sure are thinking of as a good slave owner, although I argue there is absolutely no good way to enslave another person, um, let's just say that person died you are now inherited or sold away to pay debts. So it may be that the person who enslaved you never intended to separate from your, you from your family, but all of a sudden, you know, you're all scattered to the winds. And there are numerous accounts of people who had been promised their freedom um, or who even thought they were free and the paperwork had never happened and, you know, are sold away and separated from family members and put in all kinds of precarious situations. So there's just, there's just no okay way to enslave another person. It's astounding. The, the language that we start using that just works its way down through the generations that we don't give a lot of thought to the language we're using, like good slave owner. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, I always try to do is I think, you know, it's because, as we just said, people are identifying with those people. And so they don't want them to be bad people because then they feel bad, Right. But what I asked them, especially at the Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters, was, can you identify with somebody else? Mm. Take a moment and maybe not identify with George and Sarah Owens. Let's identify with Diane and imagine what it's like to stand on your feet before the sun comes up and after it goes down to cook all those meals. Or let's identify with Emma and think what it's like to raise other people's children. Because they're humans, they're women. They're they're just as easy to put yourself in their shoes as it is in Sarah Owen's shoes. It's fascinating. And it gives me chill bumps. In in my novel, um, there's a nursemaid on the ship and, and she travels with the family because it's one of the few enslaved people who would travel with the family if they went north of the Mason-Dixon line. And she was an integral part of the unfolding narrative. And like, the word mythology again, there's this mythology mixed with some truth about how they were part of the family because they were. But there was a nursemaid in the Telfair household. The hidden truth of such things is in a story you tell about the log of the jail in Savannah. So the nursemaid travels with the family 
she's also, like you said, very susceptible to violence because she's close to the men in the household. And I tried to show that. And yet the hidden truth is, is, is in these artifacts, if we'll take the time to look at, and you have one about the jail log. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, so this woman's name is Emma, uh, and she was the nursemaid for the Owens family of the Owens-Thomas house for um, decades. And I think nursemaids are just fascinating. They, they hold this unique place, both in the actual society of slaveholders, but also in the mythology of the slave South. Um, mm-hmm. it, it evolves. There are certainly people alive today, uh, wealthy white people who were raised by black women. Um, you saw the popularity of the book and movie, The Help, you know, which is, is just recurring on this theme. But in the case of Emma, what we saw was that we had these letters between the Owens family members over the years that mention Emma. And they say things like, you know, there's this whole letter about various things. And then they say, say hello to Emma for us or give Emma our love. And we found letters talking about uh, procuring medical treatment for Emma that would be above and beyond what most white Savannians would have had at the time. And, And so we started to think about, you know, what was her place in the household? But then there are two other documents that kind of blow your mind. So one is the will of George Owens's son, uh, John Owens. And in the will, he leaves Emma to a family member and he goes into uh, this whole like line of secession uh, for who gets Emma if something happens to somebody else. And he says at the end that his goal is to make sure that Emma and any of her children always remain with his family. Nowhere in there does he say, let's free Emma (laughs) Uh, because we care so much about her and her children. And we love her so much. We love her so much. Let's let's just hand her down. Right? Uh, So we, yeah. So there's that. We also know from this letter that she had a daughter named Harriet. What we don't know is when Emma was raising these children, we don't know where Harriet was. Harriet wow. came in there at the house, um, kind of unlikely that she was just, you know, in the bedroom with the Owens girls being raised by her mother. She could have been in the slave quarters in the back of the house being raised by other enslaved women, or she could have been left at a plantation in the care of other enslaved people. And Emma might have seen her very rarely. We just don't know. But the document you're talking about is is much more um, alarming and telling. It was shocking for us when we found it. And it shouldn't have been, but it was. Um, So one thing people often aren't aware of, you know, they imagine, again, from books and movies that um, enslavers and overseers are often beating or physically abusing people as as punishment, enslaved people. And I think that that certainly happened and it happened quite often in agricultural areas. But in urban areas, it's also true that they took enslaved people to the jail um, where they would leave them either for what they called safekeeping, which could mean, you know, the person who enslaves you is out of town and doesn't trust what you're going to do while they're gone. Or it could mean there's some reason they think you're going to run away and they want to prevent that. Or it could mean, you know, any number of things. But at the end of the day, what it means is you are captive but they're not paying the jailer extra to physically abuse you. We know that because we see separate records 
that say exactly how many lashes they're paying for a person to get in addition to holding them captive. I, I won't take us to the current moment because people can take us there themselves, but you can just imagine if this is the history of how enslaved people interacted with law enforcement and with jails at the time, the legacy of that is telling. But going back to Emma, uh, we found a record um, where the estate of George Owens, which would have been his son's uh, control at that point, paid to have Emma held in this jail for safekeeping. She's in her 60s. Um, we also know there's a man named William Grimes uh, who was enslaved and escaped slavery and um, he had been in Savannah and he eventually was able to write his own story. So it's a rare account, you know, of firsthand experience. And one of the things he talks about is a description of the Savannah jail and his experience in the Savannah jail. And it's absolutely horrifying just being there. Uh, it, it sounds from his account like a torture chamber. Um, and so I can't imagine what compelled the Owens to put Emma in jail overnight, but we know that they paid a dollar to do it. While they considered her family. Yeah, that's where the mythology breaks down. Just to say, you know, you can't imagine, uh, no matter what they did, that George Owens would have put his daughters or sisters in jail for punishment, right? And, and that's when you know that family is not always family no matter what the language is that you use. And I mentioned this at the beginning, but the museums in Savannah as a whole, for me, are a map, whether it's the Ships of the Sea Maritime Museum, the Telfair, the Owens Thomas, and now you're at the Juliet Lowe Museum. If, we, if someone can take a tour through that chain of museums, that's, I think, through exhibits and stories and artifacts and letters and logs, that's where the real story is, not the kind of mythological carriage ride around town with your camera looking at pretty houses, that your museums tell a much bigger story. And I've heard you say that there's an honest reckoning that has to happen sometimes. Do you believe that the museums as a whole are, are part of that by seeing the artifacts and the restorations? And So there's a study that was done recently, and I wish I could remember the source of it. But um, it, it was talking about uh, American trust. Mm. Who do Americans trust? And, you know, they talked about universities and uh, books and the news and all these things. And the number one most trusted institution of Americans is museums. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. Wow. wow. Yeah. It means so much, you know, that that Americans look to us and say, we want to know the truth. We're going to go to a museum. And so it's a huge responsibility a huge responsibility, but also, you know, a gift. And what a fun way to learn about history. Um, to visit museums and historic sites and hear stories is amazing. And I think you're absolutely right. Savannah's a place that, sure, you can read a book that describes exactly what happened in what year, but you can also be in a physical environment and hear the stories of individual human beings and their experiences and absorb history in a way that you just can't in a classroom, I think. I love my city and, and all the stories we're able to tell, but I also think that you don't get anywhere 
without coming from somewhere. We didn't arrive at the moment we're in today out of thin air. Past events built to the present moment. I certainly hope that we all want healing and we all want, um, I'm not going to say reconciliation because it implies that we were ever all together on one page. And I don't think that's quite fair. Um, But I think one thing that we miss in America often is, you know, truth and reconciliation begins with truth. Can't skip to the end. And so in America, we have to have an honest recounting of where we came from and how we got to where we are. And museums are the perfect place to begin that process because it's where it all happened. And if we're not telling the whole truth, we're not telling the truth at all. We're telling a myth that we wish is where we came from. But if that myth was really where we came from, we wouldn't be where we are today. Oh, wow. I feel like I need, I need to take that quote and just put it on social media and, and amplify it. If we're, if we're going to look at where we are today, we've got it, which, which is a, a kind of a twist on the saying that characters destiny right? That there's this idea that where we start is, if you want to look at where we are now, Shannon, that's incredible. And I think probably the perfect place to end. I thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, sure. That was, that was incredible. Your, um, your insight into what these artifacts and museums and you've devoted your life to it. And there's a reason. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on the untold story behind Surviving Savannah. If you liked what you heard, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, as that really helps new listeners find our show. Make sure to subscribe to the untold story of Surviving Savannah wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can visit penguinrandomhouse.com for more on my new book, Surviving Savannah. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold. This has been a production of Penguin Random House, and I'm Patty Callahan. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>